Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast, powered by the Centric Lab. So some of this material may be familiar to listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house so we can help with its intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing the user experience in the built environment. One of the main things that we do is work out to map out the ecosystems in which problems and businesses exist so we can try to identify the friction and tension points that humans experience. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage and dream of the cities of tomorrow. So my name is Josh and I'll be your host. In this episode, we get to speak with Ashley Perry. This show was first recorded when Ashley happened to be working at the International Property Services Firm's JLL, or Jones Lane LaSalle, where he was specialising in providing services to large housing developers on how to deliver the most human-centric and build-to-rent developments, and something that he'll pick up on the show. So Ashley is now at a firm called LRV Consult, having been headhunted for the great work that he'd been doing there. So with a broad view on the future of the construction industry through technological innovations, he's a great person to have on the podcast to teach us all a little bit more about what's going on in the big bad world of real estate development, in particular in the housing industry, which I know is on the top of everyone's tip and tongues at the moment. So I hope you enjoy the show. Excellent. Um, I wonder if you can give a little introduction of yourself, um, kind of your journey to how you got to doing what you're doing now and uh, what you generally do on a day-to-day basis. It's a brief introduction. I'm Ashley Perry. I'm a senior project manager in JLL's project management team. JLL's a Fortune 500 uh, real estate consultancy firm um, with uh, currently headquartered in uh, Chicago in the States. Um, I've been at JLL for three years uh, after moving from Canada. Um, I focus on mostly residential development in London. Excellent. Big big change from Canada then. Did you get into any work at all over there or have you, was all your work been here in the UK? Uh, I was working for a consulting firm uh, both in Vancouver and Calgary, so west coast of Canada. Right. Different scenes then? What's, is, there any, is there like a key difference that you, uh, you sense between the areas? Distinct lack of mountains, I think, in, in, uh, <laughs> in London, definitely. That's cool. So one of the things I was really keen to get you on the the podcast to talk about are actually sort of the material innovations in how we look at designing cities. So a lot of people are very uh, up on the sort of uh, the sort of the biophilia angle and really biophilia is as much our closeness or our proximity to natural uh, things, not just having plants involved. As such, we start to look at alternatives to just having a concrete city. Um, this is one of the things that you're quite familiar with, so I don't know if you can talk a little bit more about sort of material and product innovation in the larger scale of buildings and area sort of property development. Mm-hmm, definitely. Well, one of my key focuses after moving over from Canada was involved in government research um, in Canada into, into tall wood buildings. Um, that's a tall wood buildings in the sense of um, from a structural material perspective, perhaps rather than a um, exposed uh, exterior um, facade potential. Um, that's a key interest from my perspective um, in terms of seeing cities develop out in, in terms of more renewable resources. Obviously, timber is the only renewable resource that can build um, buildings that are of substantial height. Um, and I think that the, the focus for, for um, local authorities and, 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 the, and the GLA in particular is trying to reduce the impact of of uh, deliveries and ultimately the density um, in, increase in, in London in particular, there'll be a continued focus on, um, on material choice um, on developments. 
Cool. So with, when you're talking about towers, what kind of sizes are you talking? When we're talking about density, how, how big can, you know, like a, 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 a timber, I think it's cross-laminated timber buildings, how big can they go in that way? In the sense of a pure timber structure, um, I'm look, working closely with um, some, some leading architects in this space, up to about 12 storeys would be a comfortable um, kind of level for, for pure timber structure. That's virtually everything up from the first floor, um, acting as a, a sort of podium for potential retail or any other any other sort of use on the ground floor level. Um, and if you were to introduce uh, concrete uh, core, then you would be um, accelerating that up to sort of anywhere sort of 18, 20 stories. There's also um, globally there's some mooted projects for um, up, upwards of 20 or 30 stories, um, which is which is quite exciting, but that also introduces some challenges with the interface between different types of materials. Mm. One of the things that I stumbled across, which we had a bit of a conversation over, was the, um, the, the traffic element associated with uh, uh, of basically concrete versus timber, mm. uh, the amount of trucks and the pollution as a side effect of that. So uh, I don't know if this is something that you're familiar with, I'm sure when you go through all these sort of the appraisal processes and you're looking at the, the, the sort of the benefits, the pros and the cons of certain materials and what they bring, uh, surely you know, uh, planning authorities and as such are welcoming the idea of sort of less trucks having to move through an area overnight um, carrying concrete and, and everything that comes from that have you got you know how, how's that been sort of adopted through people like the GLA or other associations that you work with yeah in terms of local authorities that are keen on timber development it's London Borough of Hackney is extremely supportive of some of the projects completed by uh, architects Wall Thistleton in particular um, it's something that they welcome from a policy level um, is to is to see a timber first kind of angle on development um, it's also something that with Walthuston I've met with the GLA to discuss the potential for reducing um, high levels of construction related traffic. Um, I think that's one of the challenges that the, in- the industry has is to sort of understand the uh, incentive to change um, how, how projects are built. There's a lot of focus on um, what, what we're building um, and, uh, and why we're building it in terms of the planning process but how I think and other than a construction management plan as part of a development process or signing off of a, of a planning condition discharge, there's very little focus on that, particularly given the context of other um, parts of the world that have um, uh, a focus on buildability. I think that's something that we'll see um, evolve in, in the years to come, particularly as London starts, starts focusing on redevelopment of some of the some uh, brownfield sites and some uh, infield sites that are um, pretty necessary for increasing uh, housing supply outside of outside of the, the typical um, house builder model that requires much bigger sites so in in the logistics side are there innovations that we need to see on like move you know for, for example um, as opposed to a hundred uh, concrete based trucks traveling through a city overnight uh, instead we might be looking at 20. It, it is what you're saying that there needs to be more innovation in that structure and that setup that might you know alleviate actually the city concerns and make the buildability, the actual ease of the, the, the construction much better and thus more, uh, I guess, a more conscious on the on the local environments in that realm. So are there sort of certain innovations? And this could be anything from, you know, we need better drone deliveries or we need better communication between different departments. Um, you know, we, if we're looking at density, we've got to understand how, what the network effects are of, of increased development and increased density. 
Well, I think that the from a deliveries perspective, if you're looking at particularly from a from a concrete perspective, um, you'll see on some of the bigger developments there'll be a batching plant, for example, on a larger development on say something of the scale of Battersea Power Station or or something associated with that. It's something we're looking at on a development um, in West London where there's a, there was an area of of, of increased um, development opportunity, several thousand homes in the area being undertaken by a number a series of different developers. Um, including a party that I'm representing. Um, and we're, we're looking at that at a very early stage. This is early engagement with the, lo- the, with the local, um, uh, local people. And we are looking at um, how we build the project before we even quite know exactly what we're going to be building. Mm. Um, and I think that that engagement, because there's obviously a concern about construction, um, construction waste, um, removal, um, and, and dust, noise... Um, I think I think all all of the, the listeners on this podcast will um, be familiar with being adjacent to a development or or nearby a development, and it, it, inherently the, the sort of um, not particularly attractive places to be near. Um, but I think that as we move towards some pre-manufactured solutions, thinking about um, precast floors, um, panelized um, brick facade systems. Um, cross-laminated timber structural solutions it's providing um, more of the building within one delivery rather than necessarily having to touch um, the building say three times in terms of uh, concrete in particular doing formwork pouring the concrete and then taking the formwork down it's inherently a labor-intensive process and I think that that adds in a layer of complexity for for cities to uh, sorry local authorities to analyze how the impact of a development from a, the construction phase actually impacts on on local people, and it's something that is moving up the um, the agenda, particularly particularly in terms of pollution. Um, the, uh, the, the the statistics around pollution and from related to construction related activities is um, is pretty significant. So uh, it, it's on the agenda of local authorities and and uh, planning planning uh, planning groups. So I think that'll only increase really. This is something that you're quite championing. I think you're getting known for is the sort of um, e- sort of the eco, the ecological, whatever sort of term we want to, to brand to it. The actual sort of eco got a sort of responsibility mm-hmm. of a- engaging something on uh, a-, a local environment. Are there any particular um, projects or case studies or, or just things that you've noticed? Uh, that have really have, have actually made a difference where dealing with the local people, dealing, dealing with the communities, getting to know the communities has led to a more sort of successful operation and whether that was something you've continued to roll with, whether it's something you've embedded more within the people here at uh, JLL, but also you do a lot of work with the Urban Land Institute. So I mean, there's quite a few things there uh, for you to sort of now, now jump away with. Um, so it's really, so has there been something quite novel that you've discovered in the process and that early on that made that the rest of that journey as a kind of a project manager, development manager, or mm. some sort of consultant, how that has, how, how that sort of made your life and their life easier? Well, from engaging sort of with the public, a public engagement tool that we're, we're, we're using, and not to sort of do a product placement, so I won't particularly <laughs> mention what it is, but um, in, in the sense of engaging earlier with um, local people to, to get the messaging right about our development I'm working on um, that's attracted it's very early days um, uh, five, five or ten comments um, associated with it and they're all geared around unlocking the, um, the silent majority that will be pro-development particularly given the, the 
the group that I'm representing is a is is a, is, is a group that's wanting to deliver a significant percentage of affordable homes, which uh, is obviously welcome in in the nature of the uh, given the nature of the UK housing crisis, um, and it's something I'm obviously quite passionate about. I think that engagement where you <clears throat> particularly try and understand why people like the area in which they live and try and build off of that for a development to look at development as a whole rather than within the red line boundary that you work in for, yeah. a, for a planning application. Doing a lot of work with adjoining owners and developers around what they are developing and how um, our, our site in particular on this one scheme I'm working on can um, provide services and uh, particular uses that can attract um, footfall and, and a, a pleasant environment. But I think that the the, the key thing is early engagement and um, and making sure that you're attracting positive engagement rather than trying to combat the negative engagement. So that's one of the things that we have had good success with um, given a, a context of, of where we're doing a project where it's, it, it is a challenging environment. It was something that from, a, from an early stage we identified as a risk for the development in terms of achieving a, a, a successful planning consent. So I'm, I'm very keen for um, uh, us to continue. Uh, my teams in our, in our planning team, or my colleagues in our planning team are actually um, also doing a similar system on, on a number of other developments. So, um, and they're actually working closely with me on, on the one I mentioned. So it's, it's very, in terms of an integrated kind of early engagement, it shows a sense of, um, uh, sort of involvement of the community, which is which is necessary for a developer in order to gain um, a reasonable planning consent. But mm. going beyond that, we're wanting to drum up support and tell the story of exactly how we are going to deliver more affordable homes, I think is, is quite crucial. And particularly listening to people and people feeling like they're part of the process rather than just party to it. Yeah, I mean, this has forever been a problem of development of people having things thrown upon them that they feel is totally um, against their core of who they are. There is a big thing of, you know, in any sense, when you see something that is not you, you question it. And people have different varieties of how they absorb that. And that certainly comes with physical infrastructure. You know, if you have grown up in an area that might have been semi-deprived, your high street might be very fractured ownership, therefore it's very hard for this idea of curation where you, you, know, you go to the more sort of zhuzhi areas of any city in the world and you know, your high streets will probably have one or two owners and they'll understand how to curate those. You know, at the moment, we are just off uh, Oxford Circus in central London, whereby the majority owners are either the, the Crown Estates um, so good old, good old Mrs. Queen. Um, but then you've also got people like Shaftesbury Estates around the corner who literally own roads and they can piecemeal these together. So then all of a sudden to be thrown a, 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 an enormous development that's not understood to them will always bring angst. And these are one of the, the unnecessary problems that came through. And this is something that Michael uh, Dean in a previous podcast talked about, the problems in the, in the planning process. Um, the you know the inability to have communication early on and have a sort of consistent communication um, is quite essential. I mean, are there any particular sort of technology products you can say? I mean, this is a not-for-profit organisation, Conscious Cities. We're not here to sell anything. Um, you know, if, if there's anything that you have seen that said this tool very early on made a difference, or if you don't want to go down there. Is there anything that you want to see? Because part of this podcast is one, explaining who people are and the realities of the jobs being done out there and how we can identify collaborations but you know, and reveal certain truths about what people are really positively trying to do. 
but the other part is, you know, it's almost like if only we were looking at this instead of that. If only someone had looked at a data application that did this, or someone looked at a physical application that did that. Was there anything that you're particularly looking at when it comes to these ideas of um, sort of project management in this way that you feel would really actually nudge whether it's you, the work you do, the whether it's the work that a property developer might do? Or it might nudge the, the you know the local authority and the local people a little bit more. Is there anything that you've really got you know you'd love to see a little bit more? In terms of what we're already using, it's a tool called Commonplace, um, which has been um, very well um, received by by our client and another number of other developer clients, um, very well known developer clients. So I'd recommend checking that one out. Um, in terms of what I'd like to see more of, there is a, a concerted effort from the City of London to build up a 3D model of um, things that are coming forward um, in terms of development and overall model of, of what's existing. But I think that certainty around um, overall impact, a sort of cumulative impact of a development in a particular area, particularly given the, the, the location for some of the developments um, that are coming forward in opportunity areas that the T, uh, TFL are looking at with GLA, um, really understanding what's the what is the overall impact in from a visual impact assessment kind of angle and it's um, and and overall say wind impact as well. I think one of the challenges that um, there's no single way of inputting all of the data about a site or development, which may be a, a, a tower or a series of towers. In terms of layering all the information around a wind microclimate study, uh, daylight and sunlight assessment. Um, uh, overall transport assessment. There's no single way of putting all of that data into um, anything other than a planning application, which then is completely subjectively reviewed um, uh, on that basis and then looked at in the round of around other developments. But in terms of inputting, it's going to be a 20-story tower or three 20-story towers or whatever it is in this location. In five years' time, that's going to have the impact of X number of cars, mm. X number of people. Um, it tends to be a little bit more um, subjective and subject to um, some challenging um, planning uh, councils and, uh, and and planning committees, that is, um, which perhaps shouldn't be up to um, a, a single group of people. Perhaps that should be um, at least have a little bit more transparency about it. So I'd like to see um, the, the elements of prop tech innovation around commercial efficiency that uh, a number of uh, people are involved in. Obviously, there's, there's things that are around better use of space or, or utilizing um, wasted space within, within office buildings or whether it's co-working or whatever whatever prop tech innovation is, is, is seen to be currently. I'd like to see things that have more of a social impact in the sense of engaging with people so they can understand um, that from a, for instance, a, a, a lobbying group might be interested in a particular view, um, say, uh, um, affecting a grade grade one or two listed building, for instance. I know that there's there's been considerable pressure in a number of areas on, on, on this around London, where there's pressures around wanting to provide affordable housing development, but then there's a pressure around, well, this view is quite important. I think that all has to be taken into account, but I think there also needs to be um, some, some sort of model that, that actually puts it in context around... Um, the overall impact of a development in the sense of moving forward and 
the development process being a fraction of its overall life cycle in, 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 a, in say, 15, 20 years, what does, that, what does that area look like? I think that that's, we need that layer of, um, of data, sort of, I guess, big data associated with a development that is, is requiring a little bit of projection forward in terms of how people are going to use a building or, or an area if it's a regeneration process. Um, but this just seems to be a little bit, um, it seems to be a little bit subjective in terms of in terms of the planning process. Really, uh, you're you're preaching into the converted here. Uh, the the idea of sort of yeah, to use that horrible term, big data. The idea of modelling and seeing the repercussions and looking at different hypothetical scenarios. You know, there's there's often a thing where someone might design a building and build a building in a certain area, and the market can completely change. So one of the things we spoke uh, in previous podcasts about is yeah, the time it sometimes takes to deliver and how you may make an application at one point, it may take a certain time to get through to be delivered, and then you actually have to take it through to market, and time can consistently have changed. We see this in the redundancy of a lot of sort of uh, office buildings, that for one reason or another, whether it's the demand to put housing there, but to also look at it and go, this is an, this is an unfit for purpose building anymore. The idea of modeling is, is hugely important. The question that has been coming up is, well, to do that is some serious, algorithm machine based coding uh, I'm not familiar with the with the depths of it everyone I've spoken to about it uh, offline have, have said it is a big task uh, something that we're working on you know privately in our own business we need some very smart people to be looking at the you know the, as, as data scientists and everyone tries to find the data scientists they are they are the new trader in the, in the world they are the one who's going to take you forward that the question then comes who's going to build this you know who you know is the question is will it be private organizations will it be a startup who takes a punt and goes i'm going to go and we're going to develop this and someone will look for it or is it or is it organizations like the greater london authority who um, who oversee uh, the sort of development and movement and progression of the city of london from an infrastructure point of view or is it central government or is it a collective of um, architectural organizations who might use it for, to sell it's it's actually an unanswered conundrum it's one of those things that everyone's kind of looking for but no one has really found um, it's yeah, it's something that excites me. But there are murmurs. There are a couple of companies that can't come to my mind straight up. I will uh, release them probably at some point along with this podcast of some of the uh, the companies that I have seen that follow this and I'll send you. But um, within, you mentioned just before your work with um, organisations or your awareness of work with organisations with like Transport for London, um, who as, as a body represents the land um, of the, of, and all movement across um, what it is to to move through the public realm uh, in, in London. So what, is there anything in particular that you noticed in, in working with them and seeing some of the innovations that they're delivering um, that have been, you know, you feel are quite exemplary and worth uh, talking about a little bit more? Well, I think there's been, there's a lot of focus for, for TfL and some of the opportunity areas, particularly um, an area that I'm uh, actively involved in the development area in. Um, they're looking at um, how people are going to be using space in the future around well, there's an opportunity to provide more jobs in this area or more houses. And I think that looking at the impact, the cumulative impact of, of new development, they seem, to, they seem to be proactive on that basis and really driving the agenda because ultimately the mobility angle of anything is the, is, is the, is the crux of the challenge for, for a lot of London, um, if, particularly if you go to areas that are um, mostly um, vehicular transport rather than public transport. And as you get out, as you get, become more spread out um, uh, in London, there's, there's not particularly many ways around London rather than um, uh, 
vehicular transport. So I think that that's probably a challenge that needs to be uh, be addressed. I know that the um, uh, going back to your point about the Urban Land Institute, those um, the Urban Land Institute in the UK has an infrastructure council, so they've been doing um, quite a bit of work. We've hold, held uh, um, workshops with TfL and um, and. Uh, GLA looking at obviously overall infrastructure mapping tool around how, what developments are coming forward and what's understanding how they're going to be utilizing um, engagement tools with mapping um, what what roads need to be um, uh, need to be reviewed and public transport associated with new development. Um, so there seems to be a lot of um, uh, focus from from a, from a develop, private development perspective engaging with. TfL um, around what the what the challenges are going to be with um, putting in a, a development of significant scale and then the public um, infrastructure associated with that. So, I think that understanding how it's a, again a very difficult one in the sense of um, moving forward, we'll, we'll, we'll possibly see. Um, if, if the whole autonomous vehicle angle continues to take off, um, which which it seems like it's going to, there will be significant changes on how people move around cities. And I think that that is something that is very much crystal ball gazing at this point in time. But it seems like um, if you're driving driving off the back of the um, uh, the innovation elsewhere um, and, and the testing that's going to be un- undertaken shortly in, in London, um, there will be challenges and opportunities around... Um, the amount of buses that are needing to be available or whether it's parking infrastructure or whether parking is going to be driving um, driving development from an international perspective. Uh, my experience in, 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 in Canada compared with over here, I think it was a big push to drive down parking, whereas in Canada it was a res- ended up being one of the things that was restrictive about development, which ended up, ended up being you needed a certain number of, of, of car spots per, per unit, and there was no negotiation around that. And I think that has a str- uh, indicative of the cultural differences between the two countries, but I think that the um, from a from a design perspective and designing cities around uh, more around people rather than the than their mode of transport to get between where they want to get to and, and getting home um, I think is uh, sort of an opportunity for for, for, um, for future transport to really kind of sh- shape that um, built environment perspective mm, I, I'm still very questionable on autonomous vehicles I'm not sold uh, part of that is that I am a cyclist and I know that cyclists like me are all very chaotic uh, the all, all experience I've seen from a data and a, a people point of view is that to, to find a truth in human behaviour and a very networked human behaviour is a hugely complex problem. There are a lot of neuroscientists who really question the idea of um, AI and its processes at the moment. We have fantastic um, systems, but are they truly aware of how, how human behaviour will respond in certain situations? Will I see central London completely autonomous vehicle aid? I think it's something that's a long way off. So we've got things in the future that can sort of be developed, but we're also looking about well, what's coming about in the next year or two. What are the sort of innovations that are actually coming to market that are making a difference? So there's there's two things here. I think um, I know we're 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 going to keep this a short one. So there's um, I've got my two last questions is what is what is coming through right now and this can be in construction tech it can be in material tech it can be in policy perhaps um, that you are really hoping it becomes an adopted tool and then this part B of that 
is what's the one in the future that's kind of exciting you? Is it is it blockchain that seems to be that something that everyone loves? Is it is it AI? Is it um, a completely different way of looking at uh, yeah, again going back to the mobility around that? Is, is it drones, for example? Is this, so out of those two, what, what are you excited and really hope becomes a market adopted tool now? And what's something that you really hope you maybe see in 10 years time that will come through? I think right now, um, I'm seeing some push from the GLA and, and, and authorities around um, building technology in terms of a buildability um, score or index that has been adopted in places like Singapore. Um, I think that that... Um, written about it uh, elsewhere in, um, in a number of publications in the sense of for there to be a policy driver to um, think about the methodology of construction in order to build up efficiency. But what I'm seeing um, in terms of business model driving the construction methodology, the elements of the um, built-to-rent market driving how buildings are built, modular off-site, obviously there's some key examples there. Um, legal in general moving forward, um, essential living with their with their modular product down in Greenwich, um, and also pocket living in terms of their affordable product. So I think that that's really exciting what's going on right now, and that's driven off the back of um, uh, sales or rental velocity um, versus, versus, say, private development, which is significantly more expensive than that generally. In terms of looking forward to, let's say, five or ten years, depending on the market um, and how, the, in terms of acceptance, um, things like 3D printing um, is something I've had conversations on with a number of different parties, uh, both in the UK and internationally. Uh, and it's something that I'm very keen to support because I think there's significant potential for that. Again, it goes back to the on-demand nature of construction, which is very similar to what goes on now, but I think in the sense of um, uh, being able to increase um, quality on site and, and ultimately the flexibility that that, um, that the 3D printing process will, will enable, um, I think is, is obviously really exciting. I think that the, the drivers elsewhere internationally, places like Dubai are very keen on it from the perspective, I think people believe it's targeting 25% of their buildings to be built um, by using 3D printing technology by 2030, which is quite the vision, considering we're closer to 2030 than we are to 2000, which I realized the other day, um, which is a bit of a scary thought. Um, that that's, that's quite tangible within a lot of people's careers time right now, especially for me. Um, so that's something that I'm really excited about. I just, I'd like to see more of that um, uh, brought into the, the UK, possibly. Um, so watch the space on that front, I think. Brilliant. Ashley, thank you very much. Thanks, Josh. So a huge thank you to Ashley for taking the time to come on to the podcast. He's an open guy, so he's open to ideas and questions that you may want to ask or send to him. The best place to do that is on Twitter via his handle at Ashley Perry UK. So thank you for listening. If you didn't find us on iTunes, we are there. So do leave us a review if you do have the time and hopefully a positive one at that. If you have any questions about the show itself, please send me an email to podcast at thecentriclab.com. We are available on Twitter, of course. If you didn't find us there, you can find more about what the lab is up to via the handle at thecentriclab. My name's Josh. Thank you very much for your time. <laughs>